0: This morning, as Phil said, is our last morning uh, in the book of Ephesians, uh, so hopefully it's been an encouraging journey for you. Uh, we will be uh, really focusing today on verses 10 to 18. We won't get right to the end, but I felt it would be negligent to at least not read right to the end. So uh, let's uh, pray together that, uh, that God will speak to us this morning. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it and by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that I will proclaim your word faithfully this morning, uh, that you will be amongst us and that your Holy Spirit will convict us of the things that we need to hear. We pray for these things in your son's name. Amen. There's a short story uh, called The Generous Gambler. And it's about a conversation the writer has with the devil. It's not a true story. Uh, And in this story, the writer recalls uh, the words of the devil, and this is what he said. He had been afraid relatively as to his proper power once only, and that was on the day when he heard a preacher, more subtle than the rest of the human herd, cry in his pulpit. My dear brethren, do not ever forget when you hear the progress of the Enlightenment praised that the greatest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he does not exist. If that sounds familiar, you might also remember it from the movie The Usual Suspects. But you do have to be a certain age and demographic. The great declaration of the Enlightenment was God is dead. And all hope for humanity could be found in the progress of science, the inherent goodness of mankind, and the education of the masses. And so any notion of God or Satan just became sort of quaint references to former superstitions. You know, wonderful to have masterpieces hanging in an art gallery to be admired, but certainly nothing to believe. It's interesting when they do surveys, they discover that a lot more people believe in God than they do in Satan. And lots more people believe in heaven than hell. And there's no real surprise really if we think that, you know, God is always nice and good and will always be a happy ending. We kind of like that perception of God. We're not so keen on the idea of Satan. But right from the start in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul has been reminding the Christians that their struggle is bigger than just the here and now. And he places our experience into this vast cosmic experience. And so right back in Ephesians 1.3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing in Christ. And Ephesians one twenty one, And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. In chapter 2, when you are following the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. God is sovereign. God created everything. God is fulfilling his plans according to his purpose. But that doesn't mean that Satan can't wreak havoc in the here and now. And so today Paul wants to remind us that we're in a spiritual struggle. But at the same time, he wants to remind us that we are not alone, that we are not relying just on our own strength and that God is with us. So with that perspective in mind, let's have a look at the passage today. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. It's not about my personal strength, but about a dependence on the strength that God gives me. And it's not my armour, it's God's armour. As our culture becomes increasingly individualistic, we're told that it's all about you. So you need to look at your self-esteem and your self-worth. And it's all about looking inside for that inner strength. And we've all got it. It's just there. You just need to find it. So dig deep and find your inner lion or your inner eagle or your inner unicorn. And the strength is all from within. But as Christians, we actually know that we are not strong. We know that if it was us standing against the world and the devil, then we would be overwhelmed. So we rely on God's strength and we recognise that the struggle is bigger than just us. So verse 12, "'For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, "'but against the rulers and against the authorities, "'against the powers of this dark world "'and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms.'" Paul isn't saying that our struggle is with demons in the ceiling of our house. Okay, this is not a movie like Polterghost or something like that. Uh, he's not describing demon possession uh, like what Jesus experienced as he went from town to town. As Christians, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so Satan has no control over us. But that doesn't mean Satan can't exert his influence. He can tempt. He can oppress. He can persecute. And so from our perspective, from our day-to-day experience of reality, it feels like our battle is against flesh and blood. But Paul shows us that actually behind that, there is a bigger power. Behind that, Satan is doing his thing. And he uses the world around us. So sometimes the world is seductive. You know, it plays to our need to be loved or respected or it plays to our sexual desires. And it promises everything, but then so often delivers nothing. And at other times, Satan uses the world to shout at us with this self-righteous indignation. And it belittles us and it demeans us and it beats us down. And Satan wants to beat us into submission until finally we just feel overwhelmed by the world. And if it was just about me standing in my strength, then it would be all too much. I would just give up and I probably wouldn't even fight in the process. You know, sometimes we take the world and we just uh, capitulate to it. Sometimes it's just like a big warm cuddle. You know, it offers just to envelop us and bring us in. But if it was just me and my strength, it would be overwhelming. Thankfully, we don't stand firm in our own strength because God has given us everything we need in Christ to stand firm. Verse 13, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. It's not clear uh, what Paul means when he talks about the day of evil. Uh, He might be uh, foreseeing a particular event uh, that is coming uh, where we will face a particular spiritual persecution. Uh, It might be that at some time in every Christian's life, there is going to be a season that is particularly difficult. But whatever he means, the point is that we have everything we need to stand firm in the strength of God. And so Paul then goes on to describe this armour that will allow us to stand firm. And when we read this passage and when you read uh, Isaiah 59 earlier, you can see how they connect, can't you? So Isaiah 59 is all about God looking at his people and he sees that a people who have completely forsaken their love for him, their love for truth, their love for righteousness. And so God acts. He puts on his armour And he goes forward. And he goes forward and he judges those who revel in their sin. And he saves those who seek mercy and repent and turn back. So the armour of God isn't just about surviving in this world. Sometimes it can feel like that, can't it? That we're just trying to hold the world off. We're bunkering down and hiding and copping a flogging and hoping we can withstand it all. But here, the armour of God is not just defensive, it's actually offensive. It goes forward, it attacks. You know, God wants us to use his armour to go forward in the world, to stand firm and proudly as Christians, to be a confident minority in our community and to go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus and to gather together everyone, who he has called into his family. So let's have a look at this armour. Paul starts off with the belt of truth. Uh, quite literally, the words are uh, to, uh, to gird your loins is the is the language, a little bit risque. But it's the idea of gathering everything up, ready to run, ready to run into battle. And so what we gather up is the truth of the gospel. And it's an allusion to Isaiah 11.5. And so when Paul talks about the truth in Ephesians, uh, we go back to Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In any situation in life, when we are confident of the truth, we act with resolve. So uh, lately I've been getting to know the lie of the land. We've only been here a couple of months and I'm still regularly getting lost as I drive around, uh, particularly as I go into Shell Cove. I'm reasonably sure Shell Cove was designed to lure you in and then make sure you never leave until you finally give up and just buy a house there. But when you're driving in, and if you are confident of where you are going and how to get there, then it doesn't matter what the passenger beside you says. Because you're confident. You, you know where you're going. And so you can ignore the, those other instructions. But when you're less confident, then all of a sudden you start to second guess yourself, don't you? You know, Maybe I should be making all of those lefts. And then they're so confident that you think, well, surely they must be right and I must be wrong. And so you give up on the truth that you are holding on to and you listen to them and you end up in some dead-end street looking at the great wall of Shell Cove, trying to work out what that wall is there for, uh, which I have now discovered. So, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so the truth of the gospel that we hold on to is the truth that God created everything. The truth is that we as sinners can be saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the truth that we know. That is the truth that we put our confidence in. And so if you are a Christian today, when you've responded to that good news of the gospel, then you have a breastplate of righteousness. It's not self-righteousness. It's not a confidence in our own goodness or our own wisdom or our own intellect. And sadly, so often when the community look at us, they feel it is about self-righteousness. But really, uh, we are just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. It's not about us or our goodness. It is about God. So when Satan accuses us of being an unlovable, hopeless sinner, then we can be confident that that is not true. Because Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. It doesn't mean we become complacent about sin, and we should listen to the guilt we experience when we feel our sin. Guilt is actually a good thing, when it calls us to action. But when we listen to our guilt, when we repent and come, come back to God, then guilt has done its thing and guilt no longer has power over us. So we are confident in the truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. And verse 15, we, are, we have feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And once again, uh, this is a connection to Isaiah. Uh, This time it's Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your king reigns, your God reigns, sorry. The peace on offer is the peace that we have experienced as Christians. It's a confidence in our salvation. It's a confidence of a certain future and a certain hope. Now, that's what we've experienced, and that's what we want to share with the world around us, isn't it? You know, for some people in our community, they have felt the brokenness of the world acutely. You know, I was talking to someone during the week and they were just sharing how uh, just generation after generation after generation have been impacted by the brokenness of their family. And they can't even imagine a world better than what it is. It's kind of like they're stumbling around in darkness, but they can't even imagine light. Uh, for others... Uh, They feel like they are in the light. They feel like they have everything. And yet at the same time, they feel like they've got nothing. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what they possess. It doesn't matter what respect they have. It never feels like enough. And the world kind of promises that satisfaction is just over the horizon if you have just that little bit more. And it feeds that dissatisfaction. And for us, as we go and share the gospel with them, we've got something to say about that, don't we? The gospel is for them. And for others, again, they feel like actually they've got everything they want in life. It's not perfect, but life is all about the here and now and nothing more. And so they look for all of their satisfaction in the now. And it might be through helping other people. It might be through family. It might be through living the most debauched lifestyle they can think of. But it's all about them and their happiness. But whatever the situation in life, whether they are happy or unhappy, satisfied or unsatisfied, we know that everyone needs to hear the gospel. We know that all of us, will stand before God one day. So this isn't just about the present, uh, although the present is good, but it's also about our future. And we have a message to proclaim and God has prepared us, he's given us feet of readiness to go and proclaim it. But this is also a struggle and a battle. So we have feet of readiness, but we also have a shield. So Ephesians uh, six fifteen Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. As we share the gospel of peace, some people will disagree with us, and some people will challenge us, and they'll be well thought out and they'll be articulate in the way that they express their ideas and it will feel overwhelming. Uh, when I was uh, at Moore College, uh, I used to live in Newtown, uh, I used to go to a cafe a lot uh, called the Green Iguana. Uh, every uh, ten t- If you bought breakfast ten times, you got a free T-shirt, uh, which as a student was pretty good, and I had a lot of T-shirts. Uh, but uh, you, you sat at a communal table, and I used to sit next to Bob Gould, uh, who was uh, the local bookshop owner and a, a very proud former communist. And he had, for the last 20 years talk to more college students about faith and God and the Bible. I've got to say, it was an intimidating conversation. Uh, And there are times when I walked away feeling completely inadequate from the conversation. Fortunately, he was there next week, and so that was good. We can continue a conversation. Uh, But I'd have to go away and really think about what he said and really wrestle with it. Uh, And there are going to be times when we will feel like that. Uh, when we will doubt our faith, we'll lose that confidence that we have. Doubt doesn't mean our faith is misplaced. It just means that we've lost confidence. And so sometimes it's about regaining our perspective. And so we go back to the Bible. What does the Bible have to say to us? Speak to people you trust. You know, go and read a book that can engage with the questions that you've got. And pray that God will convict your heart. Because faith is a rational thing. We can explore it rationally and with reason. But faith is also an emotion thing. And our emotions can be fickle friends. And so we pray that God will give us the strength to stand firm. That we'll be able to resist the devil's arrows. Because we know that our experience will be from the world but it will be Satan who is the power behind it. And so next we come to the helmet, which is salvation. And in our Isaiah passage, it's God who's wearing the helmet. And then in this passage, it's us. We've got the helmet for our protection. So in Ephesians 1.14, we have the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. In Paul's letter to the Romans... He talks about that we have, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that's because what we have isn't earned or deserved. We didn't achieve it by our good works. We received it by grace. And so what God has given us, no one can take away. And so again, Satan can accuse us. He can play to our sense of inadequacy. But our salvation is both a confidence we have now and a certain hope we have in the future. And finally, we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 describes the Word of God as living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates even to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Word shows us how to have a relationship with the God who created us. The Word teaches us about the world around us and how we should respond to the world around us. We shouldn't be surprised at the sinfulness of the world. We shouldn't be surprised at our own sinfulness because that's what the Word of God teaches us. But the Word of God also equips us to deal and to respond to the world we experience. And the Word of God teaches us about the power of the Word because as we read it, the Holy Spirit convicts us of what is true. And that's why as a church we're so committed to opening up the Word of God each week. We're committed to talking about it here together in our Bible studies, in our youth groups, in our kids' church. It's why we want to encourage you to read your Bible with your kids because it is God's Word And God uses it powerfully to shape us into the people he wants us to be. And so finally, we stand firm, using God's armour, in God's strength, and being alert. Verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Praying in the Spirit simply means that our prayers are guided by the Spirit and that we seek to pray according to God's will. Uh, And we pray constantly because the battle never ends, at least not in this lifetime. And so we constantly pray that God will keep us and hold us and allow us to stand firm. And we should never become complacent, should we? Because in the words of of, uh, 1 Corinthians, if you think you are standing firm, be careful you do not fall. So we are constantly dependent on God. And today I want us to be zealous for our own godliness. But equally, I want us to be zealous for those people around us, for the people in our community, for the people that we love. And in this passage, Paul calls us to pray for our brother's and sisters in Christ. You know, one of the great uh, tragedies for me uh, in my youth and young adulthood, uh, I had four uh, very close friends, so I've got a picture at home of the five of us. Uh, at that point, when we were 21, uh, we all professed uh, to be Christians. Uh, we were leaders in our churches. Uh, we went to Bible study together. Uh, we walked down the street and talked about predestination and opened up the Bible and wrestled with it. Uh, We were not complacent Christians. And yet, as we entered adulthood, one by one, the seductiveness of the world, you know, slowly squeezed the life out of us. And out of my out of the five of us, I'm the last Christian standing. And so we shouldn't become complacent. We shouldn't be complacent about each other. Keep encouraging each other. Keep challenging each other. Are we willing to risk friendships for the sake of people's godliness? Because that's what we're called to do in Scripture. All the way through uh, the book of Ephesians, we've been encouraged to be united together. Not in our own strength, but in God's strength. And as you know, the new guy uh, coming into this community this term, Uh, It has just been uh, an enormous blessing uh, to share in that unity uh, that I've experienced here. I know we're not perfect. Uh, We disagree about things. We will disappoint each other. There'll be times when we need to say sorry. But there is a deep commitment for us to grow together in our love for Jesus. And there is a deep commitment for us to share that love with our community. And so let us continue to walk together. Let's continue to stand firm, joyfully, confidently in God's strength. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for the grace that you show each of us, that you gather us together into your family. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the unity we share. Uh, Lord, we recognise that we are in a spiritual battle, Uh, where Satan would love to see us fall. Uh, But, Lord, at the same time, we know that in your strength you hold us firm. So, Lord, help us to not be complacent, but continue to use the armour that you have given us to stand firm for you. Amen.